How you guys doing? <clears throat> Good morning. Who came to the marriage conference yesterday? Yeah, super fun. I took a ton of notes, all of them for my wife, Charity, of course. I didn't need anything. <laughs> so good. Jesus. I pray that we would be a people who are gathered this morning with soft hearts. knowing that there can be motives and hidden temptations lurking in our hearts, wanting to come and to be restructured and renewed in the way that we think. That we could approach this life educated, correctly, guided by you. So we pray this morning, Lord, that you would speak and we would obediently listen. And we pray this in your name, amen. Amen. If you don't know, we started a series, I call it Lines, Start, started two weeks ago. Some of the lines, and when I say lines, it's things that help us stay true to our destination. Lines on roads, lines on games, like lines matter. So we looked at two that had to do, one with Edgewater as a church, men and women, how does that work? And then last week, men and women in the home were unique in our design um, equal in essence, no doubt, but we're not interchangeable. So we kind of did an overview of those two things. Uh, some of them will have cultural implications, but some of the lines are simply, this is Edgewater, this is how we look at things, and if you're gonna walk with us, then you're gonna know why we do what we do. And today is one of those, it's really Edgewater specific. So the line is about the Bible, about this book that we hold, like, what is this book? Why do we have it? Why do we study it? Why do we look at it, right? And if you don't, I think, look at the Bible right, then what happens is it's like you're playing the game of life with the wrong rules. It'd be like playing golf with the rules of football, right? Bro, I scored 28 on that last hole. I'm killing it. Yes, you are, right? Well, it's wrong rules, man. You're gonna really hit it on the next one. It's a hard one, good luck, right? So that's, to me, like you have to have some lines fundamentally when you look at scripture or you have the wrong goal and you get all mixed up. And so pastors, we make certain presuppositions, all of us do, when it comes to the Bible. Just decisions about what it is. So I have decided that Scripture is the inerrant God-breathed Word, and I've made that decision. And so I look at the Bible through that lens, and there's tons of those kind of 
presuppositions every pastor has to make. And then they will drive how we look at this book. But if you make, I think, incorrect presuppositions, then your goal's messed up. You're playing the wrong game with it. So what I'm gonna try to do today is simple. Look at some of the mistakes I see when people study and read and preach scripture. We're gonna look at the purpose of the Bible, the big purpose of the Bible, and then the meta-narrative of the Bible. Meta-narrative is a fancy word that just means, what's the big picture? What's the overall message of the Bible? So that's what I'm gonna try to do. And within those, you'll see, this is why we do what we do at Edgewater. These are the lines that guide us. This is what you're going to hear when you come on a Sunday morning, because this is how we see scripture, all right? So here's a mistake. And the mistake is this. God is all about you. And it usually comes across like this. So God was lonely and he decided to create Adam and Eve for fellowship. You ever heard that? That somehow he got bored and he was lonely and eternity passed. He's like, man, I need something to do. And so he creates humanity, okay? Like who wouldn't want a bunch of incompetent, disobedient, idolatrous, sinful, rebellious children to call their own. Yes, love it, right? So it's just, to me, the whole thing is just a little bit nutty. So then out of that becomes this idea, like the Bible is all about you. Your best life now. How to get all of your issues taken care of so that you can continue with your best life now, so that your marriage can thrive, so that you're really good at your job, so you get into the school that you want to, so that you become a professional athlete, right? Listen, the Bible is not about you. And it is a death blow to what today is the felt needs that drive America. Like, that's what drives us now. We're no longer driven, like, overarching by truth or wisdom or reality or history or purpose or self-control. Like, these giant things that have driven cultures for years, they don't drive America anymore. It's, I feel this way, so I want this, right? Isn't that what we do now? It's all felt need driven. So then what happens in the church is we begin to cater to the felt needs of the congregation, whatever they might be. Whatever is the current felt needs, the church then says, well, we can invent a sermon for that. So I just started Googling, like, what are some felt needs in people today? And just Googling them to see what happens if I Google this. So, right, I feel like I want to be rich. So I Googled, I feel like I want to be a rich sermon. This came up. The secret to getting rich from Bethel AG Church, right? Well, here's one. And there was thousands of them just like it. I'm like, well, I feel like I want to be powerful. Does that work? Let's see. Discover and unleash the power within you. Living Word Christian Center, right? Like, I'm telling you, I could go on and on and on. Whatever felt need somebody has, man, there's a sermon that panders to it. Oh, time out, Matt. I've listened to these messages. And they have really helped me. Okay, two things on that. Number one, God spoke through a donkey in the Bible and he still does, right? So let's just put that down right away. <laughs> Number two, this one takes a little bit to unpack. Number two, 
would be this. Is there water in your toilet? Oh yeah, right? There's totally water in your toilet. Is the water in your toilet mostly good? Yeah, it's mostly good. There's just a tiny bit of bad stuff in it, right? It's mostly good, right? Can you get a drink from your toilet? You sure can. But unless you got a gut like your labradoodle, in about an hour, you're gonna be defiling that toilet because of the little bit of bad in there, right? So yes, you can drink out of the toilet if you want to. I'm gonna drink out of the faucet. I'm gonna find the purest source possible, okay? So totally, I get it, man. That, that could have helped you, good. But I'm telling you, I am driving, I drive myself, I drive the way that I preach for the purest possible way of looking at scripture and presenting it, right? So what is the purpose of the Bible? What's the purpose? Well, let's look at some texts. Deuteronomy chapter seven, verse seven, puts it like this. For you, speaking to the children of Israel, all these things are written for us, so you can easily say, well, us as well. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. And the Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession. Yeah, I'm great. Wait a second. Out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth, it was not because you were more in number, not because of how great you are, not because you got 1,600 on the sat, not because you're a varsity, and not because you are more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you. For you are the fewest of all people, right? You're nothing. But it's because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers. Why am I doing this? Because I made a promise and I will keep my word, right? Okay, let's go again. Psalm 23. Now, Psalm 23 can sound almost me-centric, right? The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. Well, that's nice. He leads me beside the still waters. Well, that's really cool. He restores my soul. Man, it seems like he's really into me, right? He leads me in the path of righteousness. It almost appears in the first part of this psalm that God's really into us, doesn't it? But time out for one second. Number one, he is calling you and me. He's calling us sheep. Now we have this grand kind of way of looking back on shepherds like it's this beautiful, incredible thing. Like, oh man, how wonderful. Is that the way a shepherd looks at his sheep? No, check out this video I saw. Perfect. That's fun, isn't it? There we go, green pastures. Nah. Now watch what he does. Forget it, you're staying in there. I'm fixing the fence, I love that. Yeah. I don't need you anymore, right? That's the best. That's you and me, right? So nobody calls us a sheep, but then you gotta finish verse three. for his name's sake. Why is he doing all this? Because I'm varsity. Because he can't live without me. Because he's desperate for my fellowship. No, why is he doing it? For his name's sake. Right. Psalm 106, verse eight. Yet he saved them for, because he really missed them, his name's sake, that he might make known his mighty power. Ezekiel 20, verse nine. 
Then I said, I would pour out my wrath upon them and spend my anger against them in the midst of the land of Egypt. But I acted for the sake of my name that it should not be profaned in the sight of all nations. Why didn't God destroy Israel? His namesake. Keep going. Verse 22. Then I said, I would pour out my wrath upon them and spend my anger against them in the wilderness, right? So they blew it again. Why did he do that? I withheld my hand and acted for the sake of my name. Verse 44. And you shall know that I am the Lord when I deal with you for my name's sake, not according to your evil ways, not according to your corrupt deeds, O house of Israel, declares the Lord your God, right? Be thankful I'm dealing with you according to you, but I'm dealing with you according to my name's sake. And then one more, Isaiah 48, verse nine. For my name's sake, I defer my anger. Why has God's anger been deferred against me? Because he misses me? Because I'm good enough and I'm smart enough and doggone it, he likes me? No, for my name's sake, for the sake of my praise, I restrain it for you that I may not cut you off. Listen, I could do a hundred just like this. Over and over and over and over. What the Bible says is God acts for his name's sake. That's why he acts. Not because I'm varsity, not because I'm great. No, and this is a slap in our beautiful, lovely, unique little faces. That's what it is. I'm not doing this because of you, Matt. No way, I'm doing it for my name's sake, right? I'm not a snowflake, I'm individual and incredible and so special, God can't resist it. That's not the scripture at all. That's not the Bible, okay? The Bible is not about me. The Bible is not a roadmap for my life. There are maps in it, perhaps you found them, but they're not gonna help you unless you live in the Middle East. And if you follow them, you might end up shipwrecked or strung up on a cross because that's where they got those people, okay? So be real careful with these kind of ideas that we use because what they reinforce in you and what they do is this, they teach me and they reinforce something that to me just breaks us. It begins to pat me on the back and it makes the biggest enemy I face. You know what my biggest enemy is? I look at it in the mirror every morning. It's me. It reinforces something in me that is so damaging that somehow I can control and I can manipulate the world, right? If I can just get these things down, I can control and I can manipulate the world. You want a recipe for misery. Make life all about you. Make it about getting the keys to you succeeding, right? You'll be miserable. You'll be driving at Medford on I-5 and be like, get out of the left lane, right? Don't you know who I am? You look at your spouse and be like, you can't treat me like that. You look at your kids, represent. Don't you know who I am? Right? That's what it reinforces in us. It's just insanity. All my coworkers are idiots. I'm keeping the place afloat, man. It's me, 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 me. It's insanity, okay? And then you begin to believe you're owed something. 
The most miserable people in, that I know, the most miserable people I counsel are people that think the world owes them something, right? I did it right. I fiddled with all the gauges right and I'm not getting what I'm owed. Oh, you're miserable. And that's the way sometimes the Bible can be taught. But if we stand back for a second and think, who has broken more promises to you than you? Not even close, right? I am my worst enemy. And this way of presenting the Bible just feeds into that. The Bible is not about me. The Bible is not about you, right? God is not all about Matt Heverly. God is for God, hard period. And I'm telling you, that's super good news. When I make myself the center, when I fix my eyes upon myself and it's all about me and all about my thing, then guess what? I chase my tail for 80 years and then I'm hooked up to tubes wondering what went wrong. Like I didn't go anywhere. Like what went wrong? I think so many Christians are lost because they have this crazy idea of the Bible. When you're lost, what do you need to do? If you're out in the wilderness and you're lost, what's the number one thing you should do? Find a good direction. Find some kind of a landmark that's taller and bigger than you, and then keep that landmark in view. When you're down in the valleys, you come up, okay, still heading for that landmark. If you don't do that, guess what happens? You go in circles till you die. Scripture says, fix your eyes on Jesus, the author and finisher of your faith. Get your eyes up off yourself, get it on something bigger than you, or else you lost your true north and you'll just go in circles and you're wondering what everything's about, okay? It's no, not about me. I'm fixing my eyes on Jesus. I'm about his kingdom and his glory. And the byproduct is this, you live a life of joy. That's what happens. So I'll flesh this out for me, okay? So I'll have people from time to time and they'll say this, they'll say, Matthew, thank you so much. You have changed my life. I get what's happening there. I understand that. I appreciate that. It, it, okay, thank you. But have I actually changed their life? No. And what I try to gently say is this. Thank you. I appreciate that. But here's what I say. I say this now. I said, God picked up a dirty tool with his holy hands. That's what happened. I'm a shovel. That's all I am. And if he used my life somehow to help you, that's all I was. I was a shovel. It's not me, right? God picked up a dirty tool with his holy hands. And I've been given this, these gifts of time to study, given a gift of going to Vanuatu and being in, the, in a paradise, studying scripture and teaching young men and learning. That was a gift. I didn't earn that. I've been given a gift to go to seminary. Like, wow, how brilliant is that? And so then I take all that and I come up here and I make fun of everything, poke holes in everything, tell you I'm gonna offend you. If you're like, you've never offended me. I just say, well, wait till next week, I will offend you. Oh, that's awesome, I love it. Until I actually offend you and then you're mad at me, which is fine. We'll talk about why I do what I do. Okay, so I, I don't change you. I'm a shovel that God used to help you. And do you know what? You know how freeing that is for me? Like, imagine for a second that it was my job to fix every single person in here from all of your problems. What would happen to me? I'm gonna lose my mind, right? 
I'm going to start drinking or something. I couldn't take it, right? There's no way I could bear that. Instead, I know what I am. I'm a tool in God's holy hands, and he will use me in whatever way he wants to for his ultimate glory and for your joy. It's so freeing. Man, it's the only way to look at scripture, right? So number two, mistake is this. It's the idea that the Bible is this handbook for morals. Like you can read the Bible and study the Bible and find out how to live a good moral life. Ever heard that? And so people will teach the 10 commandments and the 10 commandments are good, no doubt about it. But let's think for a second, the 10 commandments are kindergarten morality, are they not? Don't murder someone, what? Oh, I can't imagine, how? That's too oppressive, right? <laughs> don't take things that don't belong to you. Why not? This is radical, I can't do that. I mean, think about it, tell the truth. Huh? Really? Ah, okay, they're good, no doubt. They're, they're bottom rung. The Ten Commandments don't tell me to not be a hateful person. The Ten Commandments don't tell me to not be overly, overly competitive where it's dog eat dog and man, I will make sure and keep you down so I can get up. The Ten Commandments don't tell me not to look at pornography or to lust. The Ten Commandments don't tell me, hey, don't beat up your neighbor, right? According to the Ten Commandments, I could beat up my neighbor as long as I didn't kill him. Didn't kill him. Ten Commandments, good right? And I'm not trying to put down the Ten Commandments. I'm just showing you, listen, that's not the purpose. So there's this way of like, hey, moral lessons. And then if it's not done that way, then it's, hey, let's look at the heroes of the faith so we can learn how to live, right? So it's studies in the life of David, studying the life of Abraham, studies in the life of Joseph, studying the life of Jacob, studying the life of whoever it might be, Esther and Hannah and Deborah, right? Daniel, Ever seen those? I see him and I back up and say, okay. So hero of the faith, David. What are we supposed to learn from him? Face down our giants? Or do we learn when he goes crazy and mad and spits all over his beard trying to get out of a city? Or when he commits adultery and murders to cover it up? Which David are we trying to learn from? Abraham. Are we learning from the Abraham that heard God's call and left everything and moved it to the promised land? Or is it the Abraham that lies about his wife and she gets taken into a man's harem multiple times? Or the Abraham that takes his wife's servant and has sex with her and has a son? Which, which Abraham am I learning morals from? Right? Moses. Which Moses? The one that kills a man and buries him in the sand? Which Esther? I mean, the story of Esther, let's be honest, makes the bachelor scene rated G. Hundreds of girls go in for one night with the king and then get kicked out. Like, really? What am I supposed to learn from that? Is that how I get my daughters married? Like, right? Or Jeremiah. Have you read Jeremiah 20? When things aren't working out for Jeremiah, how he responds to God. In the Hebrew, it's, God, you've raped me. You've deceived me and you've lied to me. Like, you're like, you're not allowed to say that, Jeremiah. 
How about Jonah? Should I be like him? Like, come on. Do you get what I'm saying here? Like the Bible's not about moral lessons. Can we learn wisdom from it? Sure. But it's not moral lessons. What is the Bible about? What's the point of it? Let me read for you Galatians 3.24. So then the law, when you see the law, it's Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. It's that the Torah that then sets the title away for the rest of Scripture. What's the purpose of the law? It was our guardian until Christ came. In order that we might be justified by morals, being like David, being like Abraham, by faith. Because none of us keep the law. Who here has not lied? Anyone? Right? You raise your hand, then immediately you just lied. All right? So you join the rest of us. Welcome to the liar club. You can't keep it. That's the whole purpose. The word guardian there, it's the Greek word pedagogus, which was a servant or a slave whose sole job was this, was a son, uh, dad would have a son, and that son would need to get to school. And so you know this about children. Just because they set out on a destination does not mean they will arrive at that destination, right? Especially boys. Squirrel. Or, as we saw or heard in the marriage conference, ceiling fan. Okay, right? We just get distracted. So the job of the pedagogist was simple. Take that boy by the hand and walk him to school. And once he got to school, his job was done. That's a pedagogist. The law, the push of the Old Testament, had one goal, to walk us to faith in Jesus Christ so that we're made whole by him. That's the job of it, okay? So once it's done that, look what verse 25 says. But now that faith has come, I found Jesus. I put my faith in Jesus. We are no longer under a guardian or pedagogus. What's the guardian? Verse 24, it's the law. Once you found Jesus, you don't go back to the law. You don't go to, back to Moses for what only Jesus can do, justify us by faith. It's like this, and I've used this illustration probably half dozen times. Back in like 2008, 2009, I was the snack dad at Gabrielle's, my daughter's preschool. So she's like four years old. And I thought my job was real simple. Go in there, be the hero, dish out sugar to four years old and like high five them and leave. Turns out I was also to help in the class, right? So it's, are you smarter than a four-year-old? Which was a struggle for me and very humbling. So I go there and, and we're there and they start talking about a long I sound. I don't know if I missed that week in school, but I'm like, I have no idea that there was a long eye, long eye sat. I'm like, what in the world is this? So this little boy who was sitting next to me is like, sir, teacher, which pictures do I? There were six pictures and it was color in the two pictures with the long eye sound. There are six pictures. I'm like, I have no idea. So I look over, there's this little girl who she just, she's just 
fiercely scribbling. So it appeared as if she knew what she was doing. So I'm like, she's doing king and ring. Hey, do king and ring. So he's like, colors, king and ring. Takes his thing up to Mrs. Nelson. Mrs. Nelson, I'm done. She's like, that's not right. He's like, oh, goes back, sits down. Which one should I do? Well, now it's 50-50, right? I'm like, well, I think I can get this. I say, pig and dig, bro. So he scratches out those two, does pig and dig, goes up to Mrs. Nelson. Mrs. Nelson said, you're wrong again. Who's telling you this? <laughs> he is. I'm like, oh, when do I get to hand out sugar? <laughs> That's what I'm here for, right? And he came back to me and he said, there's only two left. He looked at me and goes, I'm not asking you. You don't know. <laughs> That's what's supposed to happen when we get to Jesus. I'm not going back to that. It doesn't help me, right? I am justified by faith in Jesus Christ. I'm not going back to that, okay? That's what we're supposed to do. And I know I have people come up to me and they'll say, Matt, I'm getting serious about church now, or I'm getting serious about missions now, or I'm getting serious about serving now, or I'm getting serious about the Bible now. And I love all that. But I know this. If you get serious about Jesus, all those other things fall into place. Mission and purpose and joy and service and scripture, they just all fall into place. Get serious about Jesus. Don't go back to anything else. I can keep going on with these mistakes we make. The Bible's not a magic book. It's not Bible roulette. You know, I got a question, Lord. Tink, let's see here. Mm. That's not what it is. It's not some kind of code that you've got to figure out. Like how to rub the God genie right so he'll drop you three wishes. That's not what it is. And sometimes you hear these sermons like that, like seven ways to the secret abundant life or five ways to live Christ-like. And, and I realize they might be fine, but the moment I see those things, my radar goes off like, what's the presuppositions that someone took to preach that message. Okay, and here's my fear. And it's why I try to kind of keep us off guard a lot. And it's why I preach the way I preach and why I try to poke people because there's so much white noise now. And because there's so much white noise, sometimes you read the prophets. That's where I got it from. The prophets would do things to just poke people. Read them. You're just crazy. Isaiah goes naked for a year. Ezekiel digs a hole through the side of his house and moves all of his stuff out. Like you just you go on and on and on. He builds a Lego castle of Jerusalem and lies on his side for 430 days, right? What's he doing? He's trying to provoke and poke because he had a fear that people weren't here anymore. And that's my fear. So I'm not gonna be up here being a nice guy, telling nice people to act nicer because I don't think that works. And I don't think that's the purpose. And that's not what I do. I've never done that. I have a fear that, that there are people in here every Sunday, and you're trying to do things right. And you're making every attempt to, to live it out according to seven steps or five rules or this way or that. And you got your red letter Bible and you know the right time to say praise the Lord and you know the right time to say amen and hallelujah. And you know the right time to do all of it, right? You got it all down. But you're exhausted by it. Good church people, which is wonderful. But not Jesus people. And eventually, eventually it will exhaust you because you're trying to be your own savior. 
if I do all these things right, if I turn all the dials to the right spot, then life will work out perfectly. And it doesn't. And then you feel like you're owed something and you become miserable, right? You know what that's like? It's like being engaged but never getting married. How frustrating is that? You don't want to be frustrated. That's how you do it. So that's why I do what I do. I try to present things in ways that maybe look at this a little bit differently. So what is the big picture of the Bible then? We know the Bible's about God's glory. We know the Bible's about his namesake. What's the big picture then? What is it? To me, it's one thing. If you want to know why, one thing over the entirety of scriptures, it is this. God with us. That's the Bible. It's four acts underneath that, no doubt, but it's God with us. Act one, creation. God with us as our good and generous creator. I read Genesis 1 and 2 all the time. Every time I do, I see more things where you say, man, God, you are so good and generous. Eat of all these thousands of trees. Enjoy this paradise that I put you in. Enjoy your wife. Ah, oh, right? How good and how generous. Just one thing, don't touch that tree, it's bad. He is good and generous. Number two, fall. God with us as redeemer. That God rushes to the repentant sinner. Genesis three, transform my faith. Because I grew up, whether rightly or wrongly, I grew up with this idea that God was mad at me. That somehow I had failed to put the dials all right, failed to do the seven secrets, failed in some way, and because of my failure, God was just waiting to pound me. And look out, he's gonna get me. Flat tire, tranny, flu, epidemic, didn't matter. God was gonna get me. I was just waiting for the hammer to fall on me because I knew I failed. And then I read Genesis 3. How God deals with the first sinners. Does God pound them? No. God comes to them and clothes them. Speaks words of comfort to them. Says, no doubt, there's repercussions to this. But he says, good news. Good news. What the enemy meant for evil, I'm gonna turn for good. That the seed of the woman will come and crush the serpent's head. There's hope, Adam and Eve. And from that point on, what you see is God rushes to repentant sinners. The prodigal father with the prodigal son, over and over, that's the message of scripture. That transformed me, God with me, even though I know I'm a dirty tool. Oh, wow. Act three, act three, redemption. God with us as Jesus, God in the flesh comes, lives, dies, buried, resurrects to cleanse me and to save me by faith for myself, from sin, from death, from hell. Wow, God with me. And the last act, consummation. God with us as family. Where it's face to face again, no more separation, no more weird. It's face to face. Read Revelation 21 and 22. How brilliant is New Jerusalem? Just like Eden, face to face, but in, in a giant, beautiful, brilliant garden city that we exist for eternity, the way that we are designed to face to face. It is God with us. How good is that? What's the Bible about? God's glory, right? Okay, what do I do then? What's my part as a Christian? It's this command. There is no harder command in scripture. It's an impossible command. 
It's the goal of every single one of us. It's this right here, 1 Corinthians 10, 31. So whether you eat or drink, that was the conversation. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, what does whatever you do cover? Whatever you do. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the, what's our mandate now? Live for God's glory. Just like scripture is all about God's glory, my life is to be all about God's glory. That's the goal, that's the mountain, that's true north. And when you get that, it makes sense, right? Marriage, what's your marriage to be about? Right? Woman, submit. Or the glory of God. So I have people come in and I realize it and I gotta process through this with people. But they're like, you know, I just don't feel like I'm in love with him anymore. Don't feel like I'm in love with her anymore. And I wanna just say, time out. You missed the goal of marriage. The marriage is not about your feelings. Yes, feelings are important. Yes, emotions matter. Yes, all this, totally, I get it. But overarching, the goal of your marriage is the glory of God. That's your goal. You wake up and you say, I want my marriage to glorify you today, God. How do I do that? Your job, what is your job? What's it supposed to do? Bring glory to God. You know that works? I don't care how crummy your job is. I don't care if your boss is the antichrist, if he has 666 across his forehead, doesn't matter. I'm going there. I'm working hardly as unto you, God. I'm gonna smile and wave. I'm gonna love my coworkers. I'm gonna pray for them. That's what I'm gonna do. You, you, that's brilliant. Can you imagine the change that happens in your job, right? This isn't witnessing for five minutes to somebody. This is 40 hours a week, week after week after week, 50, 50 weeks a year. Man, you're Billy Graham at your job. Why? Because you say, this job is for the glory of God and I'm doing it for his glory. Your kids. Why do you have kids? To represent? Show everybody how good the heavenlies are. Come on, get out there. You better score a goal. If you don't, don't even come home. God help us if you're not a professional athlete. Is that it? Is it so they're your besties? Oh, we're just besties. We're best friends. Is that it? No, it's for the glory of God. You know how saving that is? You know how much that saves you from this culture now that says you better cater to every whim of your kids, right? Where they just say, oh, my friends have it. Why can't I have this thing? Because it's not about you. It's about the glory of God. And that's not glorious. That's why you can't have it, right? It just saves you. That's the goal. That's true north. And we live in the nuttiest culture ever. Where now, like I watch these interviews with these professors, PhD. They have read 7,000 books. They are smart, wise, seasoned people. And they'll have these conversations with these 18, 19 year old students. And they're just sitting there going, you know, that's really valid. I think I just need to listen to you. What? They've only read Instagram. Are you kidding? What has happened to us? Where well, we used to venerate people that read and studied and thought well, and you would listen to them. Now it's cater to the 18-year-old. This is insanity to me. What's happened? Why would we ever do that? It just blows my mind. And well, we've got all messed up. 
We got the wrong goals. We're lost, we're doing circles now. We need lines that say, this is the way to go, and I'm following that line. And if you don't like it, that's okay. I'm living for God's glory. That's my goal. Son, daughter, your life is to glorify God. I make these decisions so that you glorify God. That's what I'm doing. You're 14, you don't know enough yet. You're 17, you can barely drive. Trust me on this, right? So on Sundays, here's what I do. Here's my goal on Sundays. Like, I don't think those are the right ways. I've made my presupposition. I've made my decision. Here's what I want to do on Sunday. I want you to be caught up in the glory and majesty of our creator. I want you to see Jesus as beautiful because something changes in the human heart in that moment. Here's my illustration. Remember when the ducks were really, really good, right? Chip Kelly, Marcus Mariota, like, they were just unbelievable, they would beat teams by like 7,000 points. You're like, how do you do that? Like, this is unbelievable. And what happened to everybody in Oregon at that time? Bought an Oregon jersey. I've always been a fan, not a bandwagon. I've been favorite, Mike, right? Everybody, like, that's fine, I don't care. Why do we do that? Why do we jump onto something great like that? Why do we go to a three-hour worship time at Autzen Stadium. Talk about a long sermon. That's a long one. Why do we read online about defense and players and what, why, right? Is it about you? Do you think you can get on the team? I know I'm 50, but I got four years of eligibility left. Come on. I got a chance. I got a shot. Is it your name, your image, your likeness? It has nothing to do with you, right? You're not getting on the team. You're not playing, but you want to be part of something big and great and it draws you in. I just wanna get close to this thing. I wanna just participate in any way that I can because it's so great and so amazing. To me, that's my ultimate goal with preaching the Bible. I want you to see how great and amazing our Savior is so that you get caught up in his glory and majesty. It's not about you anymore. It's not about me anymore. It's about him and getting close to him and seeing him glorified. It transforms you. There's such power in it. It's what I do. To me, everything else is preschool. Everything else is the kiddie pool. That's the deep end. It's why every Sunday we end with communion. Have you ever wondered why we do that? It forces me. It forces anybody up here preaching. It forces us to do what? Fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and finisher of faith. There's our true north. There's our glory. That's what we head for. And when you do that, I pray and my hope is you get caught up in his majesty and his greatness and his beauty and the rest falls into place. That's my hope. That's how I preach. And so Jesus today... I pray as we hold the unspeakable gift that you who knew no sin became sin, that we might be the righteousness of God. I pray as just one dirty tool. presenting 
a lot of information. And sometimes not the best ways. I pray that you would take that, my five loaves and my two fish, and you would use it for your body today. That we could realize what our true north is. That we could realize what the Bible is all about. That we could get out of our own ways to enjoy everything that you've given to us. The byproduct of fixing our eyes on you is joy. So may we eat. May the word become flesh. May it change how we walk out of this place and how we live our lives. Let's eat together. We take the cup. Let us reason together, though your sins were like scarlet, they've been white as snow, that we are redeemed by your blood. We are white as snow. Let's drink of his redemption.